With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. It is possible... Is it possible to conceive of the American diet without bagels or Star Trek without Mr. Spock? Are the creatures in Maurice Sendek's Where the Wild Things Are based on Holocaust survivors? And how has Yiddish, a language without a country, influenced Hollywood? These and other questions are explored in this stunning and rich anthology of the interplay of Yiddish and American culture entitled How Yiddish Changed America and How America Changed Yiddish, published by Restless Books in 2020 and edited by Elon Stavins and Josh Lambert. Josh Lambert is the Sophia Moses Robeson Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at English and Director of the Jewish Studies Program at Wesley College. From 2011 to 2020, he was the academic director of the Yiddish Book Center. Josh, I'm so glad you could join us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's such a pleasure. So to get started, uh, please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this work. Sure. So this is an interesting book because it's an anthology. Um, you know, it's not a monograph or a, you know, a, a project, a, a sort of typical scholarly project. Um, and really, um, it came out of the work that I did at the Yiddish Book Center for uh, almost a decade. Um, and also, you know, before that, I got a PhD. Uh, my PhD is in English uh, literature with a focus on Jewish studies. Um and I, after my PhD at the University of Michigan, I went to do a postdoc at NYU for a couple of years. And then I was offered this job at the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, which I hadn't, I wasn't that familiar with as an institution, um, but I became very familiar over a decade of working there. Um, and this book, um, How Yiddish Changed America and How America Changed Yiddish, really came up towards the end of my time working at the Book Center when... Um, we were approaching the books, the Yiddish Book Center's 40th anniversary as an institution, 
and we were looking at different ways of celebrating um, that anniversary. Now, it happened that that anniversary was in 2020, which was quite a year. <laughs> um, and so many of the different kinds of celebrations that we had planned or were working on couldn't happen. Some of them were, you know, in-person events. Um, but thankfully, this book uh, was able to come to fruition and get out there in the world and and really reach a lot of people. It was really exciting to see a lot of people respond to this book. Um, so uh, that was that was sort of how the the process began, and I can tell you a little bit more about how it came together. Uh, but really, it's um, um, as much as it was a lot of fun to put it together uh, as an editor with uh, with Ilan uh, Slavans and myself. Um, really, it's it, in some ways it's a it's a sort of uh, a testament to or a monument of uh, the book center itself as an institution. I hear you. So to set the stage for our listeners, tell us a little bit about Yiddish. How old is Yiddish? Okay. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll I happily... start off with easy ones. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. No, just, just, just one of those topics that scholars <laughs> love to argue about and no one has a, has a straight answer for it. No, um, no, for people who don't know, Yiddish is a language. It's just important to, to say that it's, a. Uh, um, it's one of the most important and most widely spoken Jewish languages. Um, there are a few other Jewish languages that people have probably heard of, like Hebrew and maybe Ladino or Judeo-Arabic. Um, Yiddish was a language that um, we, you know, in a general sense, think is about uh, a thousand-ish years old. Um, there's some debate among linguists who are much more knowledgeable than I am in philology about exactly where in what precise place it started, but somewhere in Central Europe, um, it moved with Jewish populations into Eastern Europe. Um, it is a language that has a lot of elements shared with, um, with German. Um, it picked up a lot of Slavic elements. It has always had a lot of Semitic elements shared with Hebrew or um, what in Yiddish is called Lush and Koidish, which is, you know, the, the sort of uh, Hebraic component of Yiddish. Um, and it was spoken by the vast majority of Jews on the planet for many centuries. Um, we have Yiddish texts going back um, many, many centuries um, and Yiddish books going back to, uh, you know, the soon after the invention of printing. Um, and um, it's a language that became... Uh, very, very important um, to uh, European Jewish communities and then uh, uh, the vast diaspora Jewish community um, in the 19th century um, as it became entwined with different political movements and ideologies and different sort of possibilities for um, modern Jews. Um, and it's a language that's still spoken um, as an, you know, as the sort of mother tongue, as the home language of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, so, you know, people uh, sometimes feel like Yiddish, talk about Yiddish as a language that um, uh, suffered a great loss as it did in the 20th century, um, you know, as many Yiddish speakers were uh, murdered in the Holocaust. Um, but it's a language that continues to be spoken and written in and, um, um, and used for all sorts of things. 
Right. So before, speaking of the Holocaust, um, before the Holocaust, uh, just to give a sense of the breadth of the the uh, the reach of Yiddish as a language, um, where were Yiddish speakers living? I mean, how, just how far you know spread out were Yiddish speakers uh, around the world pre uh, World War Two? Yeah, uh, very much. Almost anywhere in the. Uh, that you can think of Jews having reached in the diaspora, there were Yiddish speakers. Um, and that's kind of mind boggling and strange to think about. I was, you know, once a student asked me, were there any, was there any uh, Yiddish in Egypt? And you, you, you come to find that there were Yiddish publications coming out in Egypt in the early part of the 20th century, you know, not huge numbers, but because the Ashkenazi and, you know, Ashkenaz is the, Yiddish word for basically the area we think of as Eastern Europe or or Central to Eastern Europe, uh, because of the diaspora of Jews from those lands really spread all over the world. Um, you had millions, many millions of Yiddish speakers in Europe. You had millions of Yiddish speakers uh, in North America. Um, you started. You had some Yiddish speakers. Uh, significant numbers in South America. You had Yiddish speakers, uh, a whole Lithuanian community in South Africa. You certainly had Yiddish speakers in Australia. Um, there, uh, there are very few places where you couldn't have found um, someone to speak Yiddish to you. And there's lots of stories that people like to, to tell about that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there was a sense in which um, much more so, especially in the early part of the 20th century, before the sort of full revival of Hebrew as a um, as a vernacular, um, Yiddish was a language that tied Jews together almost throughout the world. Obviously, there were lots of Jews who didn't speak Yiddish, but still, in in most places, you could find some Yiddish speakers. Right. And uh, was Yiddish always seen as a respected, legitimate language? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. Um, no, uh, it's a thank you for 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 asking that. And it's you know it's a it's a complicated um, uh, topic, um, and not so much covered uh, as much as in as much depth as you'd like in in the anthology that we did. Um, but uh, you know it's a it has a, a complicated history as a lot of vernaculars have, as a lot of Jewish languages have. Um, uh, Yiddish played a particular role in people's lives at different times. So, you know, very fame. I think it's very famous, but I guess if in your ear in Yiddish circles, it's kind of famous um, <laughs> that we have books from the 17th century, uh, from the 18th century that would say that would be a Yiddish book and they would be sort of apologetic about being written in Yiddish. And they might say something like this book is written in Yiddish for women and for men who are not so educated so that they need a book in Yiddish because the, the sort of idea of that was that uh, well-educated Jewish men would be able to read in Hebrew, um, but women and less educated Jewish men would uh, end up reading in Yiddish. Now, whether that was actually true, whether that was accurate to the situation, um, you know, you can ask a lot of questions about, but there was a, there was a sort of persistent sense of um, you can say a dismissive attitude toward Yiddish um, by all sorts of different people um, uh, who felt like it wasn't um, as much as as uh, respect respectable a language as 
uh, or as important a language as Hebrew or as, let's say, German or uh, other uh, major non-Jewish languages. So there was, a, you know, there was a lot of um, um, there was a lot of disagreement about the value of the language. Um, at the same time as uh, it was the vernacular in which people fell in love and <laughs> raised their children and uh, did, you know, did their business. So it was the sort of life of, of you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people for many centuries um, uh, and, and sort of uh, of inestimable, inestimable value in that sense, right? You can't, you can't, uh, you can't deny its value when it, when it was spoken and used by so many people to live their lives. Sure. But it seems that today, these days, the, the kind of status of Yiddish has changed profoundly uh, in terms of how, uh, how well it's regarded, how much it's um, uh, respected, maybe even for some people revered. What do you think has contributed to this change in its status? I, that's a, a, absolutely the case. I, I completely agree with that, that there's, um, you know, there will always be people <laughs> and I, you know, at, at, at Jewish studies conferences, there will always be people complaining about Yiddish not getting as, as much attention as it deserves. And of course, in many ways, it doesn't. At the same time, it is a really incredible thing, right, that um, in Jewish studies, in the academy, um, there are plenty of places to go study Yiddish, plenty of people working with Yiddish in their research. Um, lots and lots of um, respect for. And I find, I, I'm curious if you find this with your students, but among students that I meet, college students, um, there's a lot of excitement about Yiddish. Um, there's a lot of interest uh, and fascination with it. I um, mean, you see that in popular culture too. There's a lot of, um, in, just even in the last few years, there's a lot of pop culture examples of uh, Hollywood movies or uh, things like that where Yiddish is used and and it comes from some sort of fascination um, with Yiddish. And where does that come from? Where does that that fascination come from? It's a it's a complicated thing. Um, part of it is certainly has to do with nostalgia and with people's uh, Ashkenazi Jews feelings about their grandparents, their great grandparents, the languages they spoke. Um, I think also there is a um, part of it we I think we have to um, acknowledge is that um, there's a greater interest in new or different forms of Jewish connectedness and that Yiddish often um, helps people imagine that. So, so in other words, you know, whereas in America in the 1960s, um, a lot of Jewish community organization happened around synagogues and around Jewish community centers um, and sort of centralizing institutions in American Jewish life. Now there are a lot of people who are thinking back to older, you know, to early 20th century political models for Jewish community or uh, looking sort of ahead in a futuristic way, using Yiddish to imagine different kinds of futures. So I think, you know, that's part of what's going on. But the final thing I have to say on, on you know, explaining or trying to gesture at like how Yiddish gets to where it is, is really to talk about the Yiddish Book Center, which is part of a whole movement of people who really cared a lot about Yiddish and worked really hard um, to create opportunities for people to engage with it. Um, you know, it, it's having its 40th anniversary this year because 40 years ago, um, a guy who uh, is still the president of the Yiddish Book Center and was for many years my boss and a delightful person, Aaron Lansky, 
um, you know, had been a graduate student where, uh, who wanted to study Yiddish novels and he didn't know where to find them because libraries, academic libraries didn't stock Yiddish novels and bookstores didn't have them. And so he realized that the only good place to find a Yiddish novel was a, was a good Jewish cafeteria or deli where you could go and say, Hey, does anybody have a copy of Tevye der Melchacher, like, uh, you know, the Tevye stories by Shalom Aleichem, a very famous set of Yiddish stories. And someone would say, oh, sure, young man, here, here, come to my apartment. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a copy of this book. Um, Aaron spent, you know, and with many, many people helping him um, and, and sort of working with him, spent the next several decades collecting hundreds of thousands, millions of Yiddish books bringing them together, sorting them, reorganizing them, and then sending them out to libraries so that now if you go to most academic libraries, there'll be a few thousand Yiddish books and those books mostly pass through the Yiddish Book Center. And anyone you know um, who works on, who works with Yiddish, anybody, anywhere in the world, uh, knows the Yiddish Book Center because of the online book collection because um, uh, almost a decade ago now, the Yiddish Book Center digitized um, more than 10,000 Yiddish books, which is a large percentage of all the Yiddish books ever published. And they're really, um, it's not like Google Books where you go on and you can do snippet view and you can see like three words. You can see every page of every one of those, I don't know, 11,000, 12,000 Yiddish books. And so when you're doing research, um, it absolutely transformed the field. And I think that, you know, that, that sort of effort on the part of the book center along with what I worked on there were educational programs trying to, um, you know, teach people Yiddish, but also just help them to see the value of, you know, where Yiddish might contribute to the things that they're thinking about, how it's relate, related to or relevant to um, the stuff that they care about, um, I hope has played a role in making, um, in, in bringing seriousness and not just a sort of sense of kitsch or nostalgia to the way that we think about Yiddish, but also really honoring the fact that, that, that Yiddish plays a huge role in the, you know, and play, has played a huge role in the sort of world we live in and the world we occupy and that it's, it's worth thinking about and spending time on. Sure. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, speaking of, of Yiddish as a language, what are some of the stereotypes of Yiddish as a language? Um, sort of, uh, all the stereotypes that you, you would, you would love all the great ones. Um, no, I mean, (laughs) what, um, Jeffrey Chandler, who I keep thinking of in this, in this conversation, because he's a great scholar who has a new book, uh, called Yiddish Biography, which I really recommend also, um, and, uh, has written about, uh, Yiddish in really interesting ways. He, he, he cites some scholars who talked about the ways in which when a language, um, uh, when a language becomes used less, uh, it often tends to maintain the sort of most um, emotionally intense parts of language usage. And so Yiddish, uh, part of the stereotypes we have about Yiddish, if you talk to an American about Yiddish, they'll often know curse words, right? They'll know, they'll know taboo words and dirty words. They'll know sweet words and um, nostalgic words, you know, they'll know Bubi Zeda, you know, the words for grandparents, um, but then they'll also know the words for unmentionable things. Um, <laughs> and those are, and it makes sense in a way, because those are the sort of emotional extremes of a language. They're not the sort of day-to-day quotidian, um, you know, simple things, you know, can I have a sandwich? It's, it's more the, 
the curses, the blessings, the intense um, parts of it. So, right. So people, you know, stereotype Yiddish as, um, as, as jargon, you know, as, as a gutter language, as uh, uh, filthy in a sexual sense. Um, they'll stereotype it as, you know, not a real language. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm sure I'm missing some. <laughs> Well, I'm curious. I I, uh, I think that you mentioned in the in the book that there, there supposedly there's no word for sex appeal or for weapons in Yiddish. That this is a, a stereotype of Yiddish. That there's something very uh, pure or or um, uh, I don't know safe or something that it didn't encompass these kinds of words. Yeah, those are so th- that's amazing. Those are the stereotypes that Yiddish speakers um, portray of their language. So, so right, it's it's the great Yiddish writer who you know is uh, one of the most important Yiddish writers, Yudlamid Peretz, um, who says in his classic poem from uh, from the 1880s that. There's no word for love in Yiddish, which is absolutely not true. It's just, you know, it's, I guess in a poem, you can say whatever you want, but, you know, there's no truth to that. And then Isaac Bashevis Singer, who is the only uh, uh, Yiddish writer to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, says that there are, there are no Yiddish words for weapons, which is just not, I mean, also, it's, just not, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, it's a language like any other, and people had to sometimes talk about weapons. Um, but the, you know, those those are ideas at different points that have salience for people, right? Bashevis speaking in you know in the post-war period wanted to project an image of Yiddish as you know disconnected from you know, nation states and their violence, a sort of diaspora Yiddish land language that isn't responsible for the kinds of things that German and French and English are responsible for. Um, and, you know, and, and Parrott's writing in the 1880s was doing something that a lot of writers do, which is, you know, trying to um, think about the limitations of a particular reading audience or the way that a, a language has been stereotyped, but, I, but trying to sort of break away from that, I think. So, right. I mean, like, um, like any other language we can, we could, we could talk about, right. People say <laughs> all sorts of very strange things uh, about it. Um, and I think the part, what's sometimes very, very hard for people, especially people who are native speakers of Yiddish, who really care about it, who um, really feel like it's, it's central to their identity is that it can feel very um, silly or even offensive to them when their language is talked about like um, you know it's it's a, it's a, it's it's only funny right like that every Yiddish word is somehow funny or or that um, it's it's all silly or dirty or something. Yeah, I I mean I it's interesting. I've had. Um... A similar kind of reaction um, when it comes to klezmer, to Yiddish music, and I feel that as as a uh, someone who grew up in the um, uh, ultra orthodox Jewish community and spoke Yiddish uh, from when I was a child, and you know, in, in school, um, I always find it strange that a, a lot of the klezmer music that uh, seems to be uh, played is kind of very sappy. Um, uh, or, or not, you know, very sort of like uh, happy, upbeat melodies. And 
my favorite Yidd- um, Yiddish song is is Kof Shapaparasin about uh, this uh, little boy who's starving to death and trying to sell a few cigarettes to to survive the frigid nights. And you know, it's a very very sad and and you know really disturbing song, but it's like the antithesis of uh, what seems to me is, is commonly. Um, uh, understood as being, uh, you know, what is uh, klezmer or Jewish or Yiddish um, uh, music? It's this very kind of cheery, upbeat tunes, and like you said, it, it feels to me like that that um, uh, um, assumption kind of robs the the language and the, its music of so much of its humanity. Yeah, I, what I end up so often saying about Yiddish is that it's a language. You can do anything. You can say anything in Yiddish. You can say sappy, romantic things. You can say very cynical, um, you know, uh, bitter things. You can say political things. You can say anything. And and I, I really, um, you know, no disrespect to the linguists who sort of are revising Sapir Whorf and, you know, figuring out the ways in which language might be related to culture. But I, but I think the, the, the bottom line is, um, a language is a tool of the people who speak it. And when you have millions and millions of people speaking a language, it, it, it's not sensible to, to say that it has, that it is one thing or can only be one way. It, it really um, um, is as, as flexible as the lives and imaginations of the people who speak it. Absolutely. To shift gears a bit uh, and uh, talk about your anthology. Uh, So uh, how is your anthology organized? How did you figure out uh, uh, um, what to make sense of the tremendous uh, potential uh, mass of materials that are out there to, you know, what to incorporate and how to incorporate it into the anthology? Thanks for asking about it. It's, so it's it was a fun project to do. What what when we had to put together this anthology very quickly, and also in honor of the Yiddish Book Center, the 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 one of the first things we realized is that um, rather than starting from scratch and saying we're going to take all the Yiddish materials in the world and think about what the, you know deserves to be in an anthology, we started with the Yiddish Book Center's magazine called Packentrager, which has been published for 40 years through the whole history of the Yiddish Book Center and is an English language magazine that publishes translations from Yiddish literature and stories about Yiddish activists and people doing things in Yiddish. And it was just, and it, and it is a magazine that um, in, with its own irony is not, ava- is not that available. Um, you, a lot of libraries don't have collections of it. So it's actually, um, if you're not a member of the Yiddish Book Center, you probably haven't seen a lot of the material from that magazine before. So we started with, we got 40 years of the magazine in front of us, liter- quite literally, back when you could get, be in a room. <laughs> um, and we flipped through a lot of it to think what would, what would be a good sort of framework for the anthology and what would start. And what we decided was not to go chronologically um, or uh, to really... Try, we, we decided we couldn't aim for any kind of comprehensiveness because then it would be, you know, 3,000 pages long. But, but to pick material that sort of reflected some of what we've been talking about, right? Some of the ideas people have about Yiddish, some of the energy and excitement in it, and really some of the things that I, fi- I found over the years draw students to it, right? Like, why does a student show up in a Yiddish class, you know, who's never studied Yiddish before, and what's what's making them 
interested in that. So, um, you know, we ha- we we ended up creating sections that talk about different aspects of what Yiddish opens up um, in in our thinking. So one, you know, the first section is about is called politics and possibility, and it's about to some degree what happened when Jewish immigrants arrived in America and had a new set of opportunities. And it's to some degree about modernization and just the new opportunities of the 20th century and how that was experienced through um, the the viewpoints of Yiddish speakers and um, Yiddish artists. So, you know, we have in, you know, in that example, um, short fiction by Ib Khan, the legendary editor of the Forverts, the uh, sort of most celebrated American Yiddish newspaper, you know, a story about Jewish immigrants on the Lower East Side and and sort of what life was like for them. We have a speech by Emma Goldman, um, the great anarchist orator and activist who often spoke in Yiddish to Jewish audiences. And it's a speech she gave, um, you know, a blistering, amazing speech against marriage um, as a concept saying, you know, <laughs> talking about how, how oppressive marriage is uh, as a tool of capitalism. Um, we have so so that's 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 that that first section. Then we have a section about language and linguistics called the mother tongue remixed, um, which just talks about the history of the language and dictionaries and offers some of the the sort of famous pithy expressions in Yiddish. Um, we have a section about food because for better and for worse, um, when people think about Yiddish and when they think about Ashkenazi Jewish culture in America, they think about things like bagels and locks. Um, And so we have some stories about that and some histories and some explanations of the etymology of some of those food words. There's Um, even some recipes. And even a few recipes um, that are, uh, you know, kind of fun to see. There's an old, you know, uh, not just, you know, Jewish communities or individual Jewish authors put out uh, cookbooks in Yiddish, but American companies like Crisco Um, would put out Yiddish language cookbooks to reach Jewish audiences. So it's fun to represent some of that. Um, And then we have two literary sections, two two more literary sections, one of sort of uh, Yiddish writers in translation and some of the best known Yiddish writers, as well as some writers that that maybe people wouldn't be as familiar with. And then we have a a long section about... um, uh, the children about the the generation of Americans whose parents or grandparents were Yiddish speakers, and who were inspired in some way by the Yiddish that they heard or the Yiddish culture that they were connected to to do things in American literature or poetry or graphic novels or um, Hollywood or you know uh, all sorts of different aspects of uh, of American culture. And then finally, the last section is. Um, uh, came about when uh, we realized at some point in working on this, as Ilan and I uh, looked at each other, as we already had the title for the book, that here was a book that had America in the title not once but twice, and it was being edited by a Canadian and a Mexican. So we <laughs> we felt like we had to uh, <laughs> we had we had to get some of our some of Latin America in the mix and some of Canada in the mix, and you know in part because. Um, you know, and I think Elon's family, my family is a testament to that, um, that where people ended up, whether they ended up in New York or in Montreal or in Mexico City, really was a roll of the dice. And, um, you know, it was often um, 
uh, a very left up to chance. And so there's a lot of connections between and also a lot of differences between the way Yiddish culture developed um, in the U.S. and in other countries in, in the Americas. Yeah. And uh, where did the authors that you included, where did they come from and where did they live? Do you mean the um, the ones outside of America or uh, all well, of them? All of them. I mean, you know, were they were they all were they did they tend to cluster in particular places? Were they you know uh, more geographically um, you know dispersed? We you know we tried to find some examples you know that were um, that would show some of the uh, the geographic sort of spread of Yiddish in America. Although obviously New York was a huge center of of Yiddish culture, so. You know, if you if you did if you made a map of the contributors, many of them would be clustered in the tri-state area. And um, <laughs> you know, what we you know we we did look for to include some pieces that would, you know, uh, reflect other, um, you know, other examples. Um, the I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, uh, there's a, I believe if I'm if I'm remembering. Uh, I think one of the poem, one of the poems we chose is a Chaim Grada poem about the West, about the American West. You know, just to just to sort of have examples of of like uh, all American Jews, Yiddish speakers ended up in um, you know every sort of corner of the of the country, um, and so you know many most of the writers who are represented were themselves immigrants, were born in. Um, uh, in Europe and uh, ended up immigrating either as children or as young adults and ended up writing in, uh, in America. Um, and then, of course, many of the people who are the children of Yiddish speakers were uh, American-born um, who have their parents' culture in one way or another. Yeah, I, I actually um, came across uh, the or some of Chaim Grada's writing in Yiddish about the West. So Chaim Grada didn't live in the West. He lived in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, but I remember a bunch of years ago reading, maybe it was a, a poem or something, or some description of the West. And it's a very, you know, American, it's very uh, uh, true uh, American um, you know, Americana, uh, you know, but in Yiddish, and I thought it was, it was like the strangest thing I've ever seen, because you know, and and maybe this is part of of what your book is trying to get at that, uh, you know, our conception of what Yiddish is, is is limited. You know that when we think of when most people think of Yiddish, they either think of Eastern Europe or the people who you know immigrated from Eastern Europe and then they came to America, but specifically you know the Lower East Side or the Bronx or something like that. Um, and here was Chaim Grada, who I do believe lived in the Bronx, um, but you know was writing about the the American West and the Indians, and he was very interested in in, in trying to portray you know a, a completely different side uh, of the American experience through your Yiddish, you know, Yiddish tongue. Well, you know, part of it is explained in the simplest way possible. There were pages to fill in the Yiddish newspapers and you'd had to fill them with something interesting and you couldn't write about East Broadway every day. So they would send, you know, people would go. I mean, by the way, there was still in the first half of the 20th century, there was still a huge audience in Europe 
that was fascinated to hear about um, the American West or what life was like in America. Um, you know, at its height, the forward had local editions in I think more than half a dozen cities in America. So that gives you a sense of you know Yiddish being spread out throughout the country. Um, but uh, but but yeah, absolutely. I love. I mean, I don't know if you if you know. I don't think we have it in the anthology. Um, Isaac Raboy um, wrote novels about his time as a cowboy, you know, wrestling cattle because he came, I think, from Bessarabia and he knew how to work with um, horses. So he went out to, I think, North Dakota and, you know, worked on farms and wrote about it in Yiddish. Again, not that that was the typical experience for everyone, but, you know, as writers looked for fascinating, exotic, interesting things to, to write about. And so, they um, they they tried to uh, they tried to do that as well as you know in search of places to live and jobs and opportunities um, Jews uh, scattered to all corners of the country so um, yeah they, they, you can often find uh, fascinating um, little bits of of Yiddish culture in all sorts of different places unexpected places in America. Yeah, and speaking of Yiddish surprise, Yiddish writing that surprises the reader, were there uh, ways that Yiddish uh, or, or or some of Yiddish literature scandalized its readers? You know, not just surprised them, but really shocked them in some profound way. Yeah, so that, I mean, this that aspect of Yiddish is to some degree represented in the anthology. Um, by a chapter from a, a very famous play by the Yiddish playwright and novelist Sholomash, um, uh, God for Nakoma, uh, God of Vengeance, um, which um, was performed in Europe first, but then was performed um, in America. And famously, uh, when it was performed in English translation on Broadway, it led to the um, director and the whole cast being arrested for indecency. Um, it's a play about a brothel, and a, and there's a um, a, a lesbian uh, relationship represented quite explicitly in it, um, and it was a lot um, a lot to experience. Now, this is something that I've that I've written about. Um, what what part of what's fascinating is that at a time when um, there were quite strict standards for what you could publish in English in America, um, and there was quite a good amount of enforcement of that, that publishers were actually um, had reason to be afraid that if they published something that was too sexually explicit, they could get arrested. They, they could get raided their um, stocks, their, their, you know, all the, all the books they had in their warehouse could get burned. Um, Yiddish publishers and writers mostly um, evaded that kind of attention from the American sort of police and post office. Um, Not because, what they were publishing wasn't sometimes scandalous, but because it was harder to get the post office or the police to care about a Yiddish newspaper or a Yiddish magazine. Um, so there were tons of debates in American Yiddish culture about what was fit to print and what wasn't. Uh, there were there were debates about what proper poetry looked like. There were debates about, you know, when Sholomash, um, uh, when that play was first performed, uh, long before it was in English on Broadway, when it was in Yiddish, people called the police. People thought it was horrible. They were, they were deeply disturbed by it um, uh, because, uh, you know, writers in almost every language want to push buttons and want to uh, find ways to uh, 
uh, go further than other writers have or, or find ways to explore difficult or challenging material. So you do have that. I mean, and, and in this, you know, in the collection, you know, another example of that, um, which comes from a later period from the post-war period is uh, Bluma Lempel's uh, very uh, disturbing, um, very difficult story, Oedipus in Brooklyn, which is um, really a, a Bluma Lempel writing after the war at a time of, you know, just, just real deep pain for Yiddish speakers and Yiddish writers, um, you know, experiencing, uh, thinking about the, the horrors of the 20th century. And uh, it's a story that I think unflinchingly tries to imagine just the most, some of the most painful possible things. And I think that's something that writers, you know, great writers in all languages like to do. Um, and and certainly it was a part of what Yiddish literary culture tried to tried to uh, uh, take on. Yeah, I, I interestingly the the um, Shalomash um, uh, play that you you were talking about the God from the Kama, the God of Vengeance, uh, that was so scandalous in the. 1930s 20s. or what ha- 20s um was recently uh uh, uh put on broad uh, off broadway i was uh, uh uh went on stage again and was a tremendous sensation in yiddish you know with english and i think maybe russian subtitles um so uh, it seems to be coming around in some sense well that i mean i love that's a play that i love to teach it's um it is really strange. <laughs> it's a, it's just, but it's a great, you know, Ash is a, but you know, there's uh, people can argue about it, but I, but I think there's no question. Ash is just an unbelievably major 20th century writer who, whose works were um, his novels in the forties were immediately, you know, they were released in Yiddish and English at the same time. They were translated immediately and they sold hundreds of thousands of copies in English. They were famous. I mean, he, he was, profiled in the New York Times. He was, you know, as famous as a, as a writer could be. Um, so it's a little sad that I think uh, some sort of more casual readers don't know Ash's work, but it's, it's, it's really uh, powerful. Uh, yeah. But he, he in particular seems to have ha- had an interest in uh, being provocative. Uh, I don't know if it, for its own sake or, or for some higher cultural or, or moral, um, you know, goal, but he 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 does he he does seem to have set himself up to provoke. In addition to his, the God, his play, The God of Vengeance, he also has a trilogy all about Jesus and the Holy Family. One of them is called The Nazareth, uh, and the other one is called Mary, and the other one's called I think Paul. Uh, and those also were c- considered extremely uh, scandalous within the Jewish. Um, sort of uh, Yiddish cultural scene because it was felt uh, that those were somehow um, uh, had a kind of missionary purpose or something to get people to be Christian or something like that. Um, yeah. No, it, and look, it's, it's, it's true. You, he was definitely, you can think of him as a writer who was out there to provoke, but it's actually on the, on the contrary, I'd say it's actually hard to think of a, of a, a really important, interesting, major modernist writer who wasn't in Yiddish or in another language. In Yiddish, you have people like Isaac Bashev, a singer who was very provocative, who wrote stories about what we would call the trans experience, about um, all sorts of uh, sexual improprieties. Um, you know, his first novel ends in what I think you can only describe as an orgy. 
uh, a sinful blasphemous orgy. Um, so, you know, and, and many of Yiddish poets dealt with, you know, very intimate, intense emotions. Um, but then again, you know, James Joyce, Henry Miller, um, you know, uh, Philip Roth, you know, pick, pick a, a, a writer from the 20th century who wrote in English or in certainly if we name French writers, German writers, it would be easy to think of writers who dealt with material just as, uh, transgressive and, um, and troubling. Sure. Sure. Well, would you say that there's an overall message of your anthology? I'm, I'm not sure a message per se, but I think what we tried to capture, um, you know, there are, there have been other anthologies of Yiddish literature and translation, many of which are excellent. What we tried to capture was, um, the sort of energy of and the enthusiasm of the Yiddish Book Center, which is a place that, um, you know, takes Yiddish very seriously and tries to engage with the most serious scholarship and the most um, and and not to and not to ignore in any way does tries not to ignore the painful parts of the history of Yiddish speaking people, which are obviously very important but to um, take joy in the language and its possibilities and to be sort of open to su the surprises you can find in it. Um, that's, I think, what the anthology is trying to do. And that's why, you know, it's a, it's, it's a smorgasbord. It's filled with all sorts of surprises. Um, we wanted to make sure that, th that you would flip through it and not, you know, it's not designed to read through in one go, but to flip through and find discoveries and, um, and, and have that sense of surprise and, and excitement. And that, that's, I think, what the anthology is, is trying to capture. Well, it, it's certainly extremely captivating. Um, uh, uh, well, before we let you go, uh, I'd like to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about a current project or a new project that you're working on. Sure. <laughs> Uh, well, it, it's very different, right? This anthology is um, a little bit more fun. In my um, uh, more serious, wearing my more serious scholarly hat, my next book, um, which is on its way, um, is about uh, American Jews and the publishing industry. Um, it sort of uh, asks the question of uh, how it mattered to the history of American literature and to American culture that even at times where there was quite a bit of anti-Semitic prejudice in American culture, American Jews were very empowered within the publishing industry and uh, ran publishing companies and were, you know, uh, major editors and how it changed what was published about Jews, about non-Jews, about other subjects. Um, so that book, um, it, which is going to be called The Literary Mafia, is uh, almost done and uh, should come out uh, within a couple of years. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. It's really a pleasure to, to talk about the book. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Okay.